Welcome to the Anachronism Podcast. I'm your host, composer Gustav Hoyer. Welcome back. Today we're going to hear part six of The Golden Sparrow, A Musical Escape Room. And this has been an ongoing series that tells the fictional world of a musical escape room I produced in Colorado in 2019 that featured music and part of the puzzles. If you haven't had a chance to hear the whole story, I'd encourage you to go back to episode one and hear all the parts so you can catch up first. And the beauty of podcasting, you can do that uh, right from your favorite podcasting syndication site and then pick up right here with part six. Part six. I stood motionless before the wardrobe for a moment while I waited for something else to happen. I had turned a key in a long dormant lock, and I had no idea what I had opened, or perhaps freed. I remained still for almost two minutes before I could rouse myself to move. I first headed to the door to the office. I had taken quite a fright, and as I stood, gathering my person together from the fragments that the act of opening the lock had sent flying through my psyche, I assured myself that the office door had slammed as a result of the wind. I walked over to the door and grabbed a handle to open it and look into the hall. It did not accede to my wishes. I wrangled the knob, took out my key for the lock, and heaved at the door which, I was now belatedly recognizing, was made of a much sturdier and unrelenting material than any other door in the building. It was locked in a manner that the door handle and the key I held would not persuade to be otherwise. I went to the windows that looked out to Franklin Lane, and they too were now fixed, closed. Beginning to panic, I started to reach for the heavy box on the desk to throw at them to open, but I hesitated. I was letting my imagination carry me to irrationality. I touched the cell phone in my pocket and was reassured that I could reach the outside world at any time. In my panic, I had briefly forgotten my triumph at engaging the lock on the wardrobe. With the faint sounds of music penetrating my ears and echoing my head, I approached the wardrobe. My action with the device on the wall had effected a change, so I pulled the handles with cautious expectation and the doors yielded to my efforts. I can't say exactly what I expected to see in that wardrobe but I can safely say that what I did, I most certainly did not expect. What was behind the doors was, frankly, impossible. The cabinet itself was devoid of any contents and instead opened into a short hallway that receded into a much larger chamber at its opposite terminus. Again, this was completely inconceivable. I had been in the room on the opposite side of the wall many times over the last few months and it was empty, and it looked nothing like what I saw at the end of the short hallway that receded into the cabinet before me. Lest you think there was some hallucination or vertigo, there was none. There was no flash of light, or glitter in the air, or any mark of enchantment. This passageway sat before me as matter-of-factly as any hallway I had ever walked. It was as real as the bathroom at the end of the hall and the street outside, if I hadn't extensively surveyed every room in this building, I would have thought it merely a novelty of a secret passageway that went to the next room. 
but my lifetime of practice with the routine physics of space and matter waged war against what my eyes reported before me. It was impossible. But my nose also testified to the antiquity of the passage. A delicate air of enclosed neglect wafted out from the hallway before me. It was musty, and the whole of the passageway was coated in the same light dust that met me upon my first entrance to 25 Franklin Lane. I stood there, staring through the cabinet into the next room, which was not actually the next room. Having opened the door, I also discovered the source for the ephemeral music that had threatened my sanity over the last weeks. The sound was living and full, and was clearly being produced in that next chamber by a method that was out of my line of sight. If I wanted to discover this music, I would need to overcome the undoing of my will occasioned by the shock of revealing this inexplicable passageway. I stood there dumbfounded with that same sensation that happens when you know that you know precisely the word or phrase you want to speak, but cannot by any means recall it. This disrupted and off-centered feeling fixed me where I stood for several minutes as I listened to the music coming through the wardrobe and attempted to rally the will to act. It was with literal trembling that my foot extended into the enigma before me and I stepped into the passage. My brain kept assuring me that this passage was a malignant illusion that would undo me, but my body discovered a completely ordinary passage, as material and real as the hallway outside the office door. I crept slowly in toward the larger chamber at the end, and whether it was foolish to do so or not, I spoke out toward the music with the tentative, Hello? The music stopped with a slightly ragged cessation of the individual instruments, and I knew immediately that there were persons that had been actively producing the music. There was no other response. However, with the discovery that there were people in the next room, I felt emboldened to complete the short journey there. As I stepped into the larger room, I again was unsettled in my inmost being at discovering a large chamber whose dimensions made it the size of two whole floors in my seemingly remote property on Franklin Lane. This room was certainly not confined to the physical dimensions of the building I had just left, but every step of my expedition here testified to it physically occupying the same space. I looked back up the passage, and I saw Franklin's office where the late glow of the setting sun had filled the room with copper radiance. As I turned back to the chamber, I noted many of its details, which I will here relate. First, the physical space itself. The room was slightly cavernous and damp, and I attribute this to the fact that it was constructed of large stone blocks. In fact, of all the magnificent historic buildings I had seen in town, none of them had masonry of this craft and quality. There were small details that had been wrought into some of the blocks that gave the room a royal dignity. Nothing baroque, but elegant and crafted. The room was lit by old electric sconces that extended around the perimeter of the room about six feet off the ground, at intervals of about two feet separation from each other. This ensured that the room was well lit, but the lighting was not particularly bright, and all of the bulbs emitted the orange-amber glow of the first generation of electric light technology. This room would be a grand and modern hall, if the year were 1897, 
and, as with Franklin's office, there was no evidence that it was any other time. The center of the room was off to my left-hand side as I entered, and this orientation gave the sense that the passage through which I arrived was not intended as the main entrance, but rather was a service entrance that opened into the chamber from an out-of-the-way corner. There were carved wooden benches in parallel rows on opposite sides of the room, so that a crowd of people could sit in two parts and directly face each other. The rows extended on the near and far sides of the chamber from where I had entered so that the farther collection of benches would look toward me in the direction of where Franklin's office sat at the end of the passage. In between these arrayed rows, there was a raised dais that would enable a speaker to address attendees on either side. On the far side of the dais, on the far wall to the left, from where I entered, there was another platform, and it was upon this feature that I beheld the musicians whose playing had haunted me. Three people sat holding instruments, a violin, a viola, and a cello. As musicians do when they are waiting to play, the violinist and the violist had their instruments resting on their laps, while the cellist let his instrument lean on his shoulder. Each of them had a music stand, but I could not initially tell if there was music on them. There were small placards or nameplates that hung down from the back of each stand that I could not decipher from the distance at which I surveyed them. As if the discovery of three living souls in this strange place were not odd enough, each of them wore formal wear and a colorful mask that obscured their faces. It was somehow macabre and threatening, but the masks bore expressions of sorrow, and the accumulated impact of the sight of them was one of deep sadness that inspired pity to rival the fear. Again, I spoke. Hello, where is this place? Silence. Who are you? Silence. I slowly approached them, and they intently watched my every halting move. Can you speak? Silence. I had crossed the first platform, and was now on the ground before the further platform on which they were seated. I looked to either side and saw the main entrance into the room, behind and to the right of the musicians. It was directly opposite from the passage I had entered. It was a grand arch, and there was a heavy wooden door that sealed it. I walked to the door, and before I even attempted it, I somehow knew that it would not open. My instinct was confirmed as I got close to the door and realized that it had neither knob nor handle. It appeared as if this room had actually been boarded off and that this door was not intended to provide access to the chamber, but to prohibit it. Just to prove my fears, I pushed into the door to see if it might swing open, but it did not. It was firmly, stubbornly placed, and judging from its feel as I tested its resolve, I knew it was built of much hardier stuff than I would be able to overcome with my strength. While I made my sortie to the sealed portal, the musicians sat without speaking, watching me. Their masks prevented me from receiving any indication of their expression, and the compounded effect of their enigmatic presence dislodged an angry demand from my throat. What is this place? Who are you? How do I get out of here? As I spoke, I felt my temper rise, and I approached the player's platform in what must have been an increasingly threatening manner. As I neared, 
the player all the way to the left, the violinist, took a document from her stand and extended it to me as if in response to my call for answers. It was a single sheet of music that had been inscribed on the back with a shaking hand. It read, Please help us. We are trapped in this room, unable to leave. We are players in the orchestra for a show called The Golden Sparrow. A man named Elias Franklin took a peculiar interest in the show and came to every performance. He was especially interested in the composer, Ludwig Schroeder. At the final show, he was the only person in the audience. He invited us to a reception at a nearby fraternal lodge in honor of a successful run. Only the three of us came. He shared several toasts of expensive champagne with us and then asked us to play the overture to the Golden Sparrow one final time before we left. It seemed a bad idea to say no. While we were preparing to play, he handed us these masks and asked if we knew the Grand Corral. We said yes and proceeded to play it. As we finished, we knew something profound had just happened. His demeanor darkened. He asked if we knew that the overture held secrets that were not meant to be heard. He then asked if we knew those secrets. By now we realized that the power of speech had been taken from us, and we had been fixed to these chairs by some alteration that we cannot describe. He said the secrets contained in the overture to the Golden Sparrow would be locked away forever from the world behind a unique musical lock made of the Grand Corral. He sealed the main door that we had entered through and then disappeared in the passage where you came out. We've sat here, unable to speak. We have no idea how long it's been since that happened, as we have been in some sort of trance. We have regained full awareness a few times since Mr. Franklin disappeared into that passageway. Every time we have, we struggle to play the grand chorale without success. We know that playing it is like opening a musical lock. If we can play through the chorale correctly, we will be freed to deliver our final performance of the overture to the Golden Sparrow. Maybe that will break our imprisonment. Looking up from the sheet, I struggled to grasp what I had just read. I now understood the source of the music that I heard when I was in Franklin's office. It was the musical searching of these three captives whose desperation wafted through the closed wardrobe door into the adjacent room. I marveled at the trance that the letter described and wondered if they were only experiencing the passage of time when someone was in Franklin's office. Or were they trapped in a state that left them conscious of each passing minute of the last century? As difficult as their situation was on its face, I found myself recoiling in horror at the thought that they had vainly labored at a forgotten musical passage for more than a lifetime of years. Their clothes were sharp and fresh and did not betray the ravages of decay that such a span of time would normally manifest. The stage, the chairs, the chamber itself were devoid of any signs of cobwebs or the working of entropy that would attend a room over the course of a lifetime. This was a strange enchantment, or perhaps it was the product of an ancient and nearly forgotten science, but these players appeared as fresh and modern as if I stood before them only hours or days after they were first interred. There was no evidence to suggest that time had passed in this room at the same rate as it had passed in the larger world. I'm not sure why I did, but as I thought about this possibility, I subconsciously pulled out my mobile phone. 
I had been so trained by its steady companionship over the years that I again looked to it for clarification. Perhaps the clock on the phone would give me some indication. Looking at its face, I noticed a few specifics. First, the cell phone evidenced only the normal passage of time since I last checked earlier that day. Second, there was no cell signal. I thought that might be a byproduct of the heavy construction of the chamber in which I now stood, so I walked back into the office to see if I would be blessed with the reappearance of the bars that indicated increasing signal strength. However, even standing in Franklin's office, the device was still not connecting to the cellular network. I held it in the air and moved around the room looking to see if I might get the hint of a signal, but there was nothing. As if to punctuate the futility of looking to my electronic companion for aid, it was at this moment that a pop-up window helpfully informed me that the phone battery was now at 1% and the device would be shutting down. I stood for a moment, staring into the black mirror, before resignedly returning it to my pocket. There would be no help from the outside world. This development was discouraging, but I was not alone. I returned through the passage to stand before the three mute figures on the stage. Addressing the violinist, I said, You can't speak. She shook her head slowly and sadly. You are prisoners. A slow nod from all three. Locked behind music. Don't you have it there on your stands? No. Where is the music that you need? At this, all three motioned to a curious box on the stage that I had not noticed before. It was roughly the size of a small filing cabinet, was solidly made, and fixed to the floor. From the indication of the players, I surmised that it contained what they needed to be freed. How long have you sat here since Mr. Franklin left? They offered no response, and their speechlessness reminded me that I must inquire with a yes or no question. Thinking for a moment about the right wording, I followed with, Is the year still 1897? A tenuous response of yes. Although I could not see their faces, I had the distinct impression from their gestures that the idea that it had been more than a handful of days was inconceivable to them. I was profoundly comforted by learning that they had not sat here in tortured struggle since the evening that left them trapped on this stage. With this comfort, however, I was now unsettled by the realization that, at least in this room, only a few days had passed since Mr. Franklin walked out of this chamber forever. A final matter of clarification would cement my understanding. Did you hear sounds coming from the passage? An emphatic yes. Did you play when you heard them? Again, yes. Now, the final stroke. Has there been any time when you sat here and heard no activity from the passage? I waited breathlessly. After a brief pause of consideration, a unanimous no. This answer confirmed my suspicion. If they had never sat with extended silence, then that meant that some form of stasis had frozen the passage of time except for those moments when someone was in Franklin's office. I now understood the full strangeness of my circumstances. Somehow, by opening the peculiar lock on the wall, I had entered into a passage from my native time and emerged into a chamber that slumbered in 1897. I had stepped back in time, or time had stepped forward to me, 
accompanied only by the delicate click of a furniture lock. But I knew it wasn't the door lock that held this power. There was something in the musical rhythm from the device on the wall that unlocked both the physical mechanism of the wardrobe as well as the very fabric of space-time connecting my present to Franklin's past. With the reality of my circumstances in greater focus, I now attended to the small cabinet that sat on the stage. I looked for exterior handles or other mechanisms that might open it, and there were none. Neither were there any hinges or seams that might provide leverage for an effort to break it open. I stood for a moment considering the situation in which I and these three souls were together confined. I took a moment to read the placards that hung from the stands, hoping for some clue to this mystery. The violinist's placard bore, I sing after the machine. The violist, speak my number. The cellist, three timbres for three virtues. This lock of Mr. Franklin's was devilishly complex and more than just music. The three phrases referred to things that I could not immediately understand. Reading about the, quote, machine, my mind went to the strange device on the wall of Franklin's office that I had now successfully operated. The placard described singing after the machine, but I heard no singing when I operated the wardrobe mechanism, and if the singing was supposed to follow, it had not happened. Perhaps it referred to a different machine somewhere in the office or in this chamber. The second placard seemed more straightforward. I thought I would try an experiment. Addressing the violist, whose placard invited a number, I said, Your number is two, because you are in the middle of three players. At this, he placed his viola on his shoulder and played a short passage of music. When it was complete, he put the instrument back into his lap. I waited for some effect to manifest in the chamber, but it lay still and motionless. Nothing. I was encouraged that the statement of a number elicited a response from the player, but it was evident that it elicited no response from the transcendental lock which imprisoned him. I suspected that I would need to interact with each of the players to induce them to play. My hope was that if they played the necessary musical passage, it would enable access to the music that would undo the spell of their confinement and mine. I decided to turn my attention to the first placard, as it seemed the most straightforward. I merely needed to find and operate a machine. I now understood that the singing to which the violinist's plate referred must mean that she would be empowered to play a musical fragment. It did not appear to mean that she would actually sing. Looking around the hall, I noticed that, centered along the wall that ran along the left side of the chamber, there was a pedestal, upon which rested a small wooden box. I approached it, thinking that it might be the aforementioned machine. The box rested on an exquisitely crafted marble column. Exploring it closely, I discovered that it had no lid, and, in the same manner as the box on the stage before the players, it was expertly crafted to betray no seams in its manufacture. It did, however, bear one external feature. There was a wide slot that was cut into the face of the box. It was very narrow and looked like a mail slot, only thinner as to accommodate a single piece of paper. 
I tried to pick the box up from the pedestal, but it was, as I feared, firmly anchored in place. Leaning over to examine the slot more closely, I now saw very delicate engravings in the wood beneath the slot. I recognized it as the same sort of symbology that was written on the brass plate from the box in the office. I thought that perhaps this box would be activated if I would insert the plate in the slot. At last, a breakthrough. Turning away from the device, I called out to the players as I headed toward the passage. I think I know how to open the box. I was unsure if they understood me, but I felt compelled to speak hope to them and to myself. Traversing the short passage brought me back into Franklin's office. The sun had set by now, and I turned on two lamps in the corners of the room. I found the brass plate quickly and returned to the adjacent chamber in haste. Approaching the box on the pedestal along the wall, I had the sinking realization that the plate would not fit inside the slot. I attempted to insert it several different ways, but it was quickly clear that this plate was not a key for this lock. I held the plate up to examine it again and noted the pattern of boxes and lines was not the same as that carved beneath the slot on the box before me. I stared at the brass plate, straining and squinting to see if there was some larger pattern that was buried like a gestalt pattern in the metal. That yielded blurry squares and lines. I looked around the room at more length to see if, somehow, the pattern on the bar was engraved in an architectural feature. I did not see it. I held the bar next to the carved pattern in the wood and looked for some relationship between what was engraved in metal and what was engraved in wood. I did not find one. However, although the patterns were composed of similar squares and lines, and although they did not exactly match each other, this close comparison yielded a hopeful eureka moment. In my efforts to decode the enigmatic patterns, I had been overlooking the answer to one of the puzzles that was bursting from the metal. To the far left of the symbols was a clearly engraved number, 18. I excitedly returned to the base of the platform where the players sat intently watching me. I addressed the violist, slightly breathlessly. Your number is 18. The violist, as he had before, picked up his instrument and played a short musical fragment. It was an odd bit of music as it didn't seem to have a strong identity of its own. It was a series of quick notes that didn't change pitch and a few longer notes. It was no tune that I would carry forward in my head. It seemed just a functional bit of notes that existed to do a job and nothing more. As the last of these sonic laborers made their appearance, I heard a click near my feet. Looking down, I saw a change in the musical safe that sat on the stage. A door opened that was the depth of one-third of the top of the box and the full width of the top. It opened up into the front of the safe as a framed document popped upward from within the safe. I grabbed it and saw within the frame what seemed like a sheet of music. It was framed to appear as a normal letter, being taller than it was wide. There was writing on the top and the bottom, but the writing on the bottom was upside down. Rotating the frame 180 degrees to the right or left, the writing on the bottom would be correctly oriented, and the writing that had been on the top and readable was now upside down on the bottom of the document. 
I here surmised that this document was itself a puzzle, because the words at the top and the bottom of the page were the same. They read, The Grand Corral. This was the music for the players. I assumed that since the music was freed at the playing of the violist, it was his part. I placed it on his stand, but I hesitated as I did so. Which end was up? I addressed him. Is that your part? No response. The Grand Corral, that's your music, right? No response. Don't you recognize your own music? I was becoming increasingly agitated. The violist finally responded and pointed again at his placard. I know what it says. Speak my number. I just did that. Glancing at the placard absent-mindedly, with a start, I realized that the words it had previously borne were gone, replaced by the Grand Corral. Setting aside the manifestation of another bewildering wonder in the mutating engraving, I contemplated what the new phrase could mean. It seemed to recognize that we had, indeed, broken the first seal on the violist, and now he sat with music to the Grand Corral on his stand. It was clear that I would need to unravel the mystery of the other two placards in order to secure two more parts for their respective players. I felt a moment of remorse for being so sharp with this poor soul. I acknowledged, Sorry, you said in your letter that you don't remember how it went. You don't know if this is your music, do you? He slowly shook his head. Navigating this diabolical lock would fall completely to me. And that concludes Part 6 of The Golden Sparrow. If you'd like to connect with me, you can find me on Facebook at Gustav Hoyer, Composer Impresario, or on Twitter, and you can also email me at salutations at gustavhoyer.com. I'd love to hear from you. I create this podcast to share my love of music, and your feedback helps me improve it. Thanks for joining. We'll see you next time.